we have just been singing, I've seen you move, move in power. And I believe I'll see you do it again. I think we can be pretty convinced that whoever wrote those words was moved by God, but not moved just with emotion, but moved with faith to believe the things that they were writing, the things that they were singing, and then inspiring other people to sing. And we can sing those words tonight. But my prayer is that they wouldn't just be words that we sing. And we can all too easily kind of recognize the inspiration or the experience of somebody else somewhere has encountered God and been moved by him. And so this, this song has sprung from within us. But you know what? Unless we're encountering God, unless we're allowing for ourselves to be moved by him, allowing for our confidence to be placed in him, faith to arise, we're just parroting the words of someone else. We're just an echoing of someone else's experience and echoes diminish over time, don't they? Yeah. Are you familiar with echoes? You say something and it might sound loud, the first little echo, but it won't be long before it's gone altogether. I want to suggest to you tonight, would you seek God with all your heart? Would you seek God with all your heart? I don't want you to be people who are living the echoes of someone else's experience. We can't afford to be people who allow our experience of God to be something that we're receiving secondhand. It's not God's heart for you. You've heard it said, but I'll say it again, that God doesn't have a heart to have grandkids. I hear grandkids are absolutely fantastic. But that's not God's will for you. God's will is that you might all be children of equal status in his family, that nobody comes at one remove, but that we might all come to him with the same expectation that our good, good father would lavish his love upon us. And so tonight we're going to open up the word of God and consider, you know, last, last week we saw the experience of that centurion who understood authority. He understood how God was at work within the world and how recognizing Jesus, not just to be a teacher, not just to be a good man, but to be the king of a new kingdom. He came to him and invited the king of this new kingdom to exercise his authority. And how when we recognize who God is, when we recognize how God is at work in the world, then we can see God move in his authority in our lives. And do you know what? God also grants to you that authority. When Jesus Christ was about to depart from this world after completing all of his ministry, all of his mission, he said to his disciples, do you know what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And Jesus Christ is telling us that he is the one who is the receiver and the practicer of all the authority in the whole of creation. And he deposits that authority in you as he commissions you, as he says to you, now you go and do what I've been doing. He's actually saying that all this authority is coming from heaven. It's, it's in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, now in you, now in you, go and be like me, go and do likewise. I don't know about you, but sometimes we might feel a little daunted. Does anybody ever feel small? Anybody ever feel small? You know, we, we, we always talk about a big, big God, don't we? And it's a good thing in the light of a big, big God to sometimes feel a little bit small. That's not such a bad thing. So a, 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 a small saint, saved by his grace, easily fits in the hand of a good, big God, doesn't he? I, I want to be in that place. That's a good thing. 
But you know, sometimes we look at our world, some of its challenges. Maybe we look at our own lives, some of our difficulties. Maybe we look at the things that are going on around us. And, and maybe sometimes we feel small in that sense. And we, we think to ourselves or we wonder to ourselves, what difference can I make? Will my life really make a difference? Will it be noticed? Can it be of value? And tonight, we're going to see, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the miraculous things of God, the way that God healed the sick, gave sight to the blind. He set people free from oppression, whether it be natural or supernatural oppression. He set people free. And we're saying we want to see God do these things again in our time, in this place. You know, Jesus taught you to pray, your will, God, be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you for a moment think that God would teach you that if it wasn't a possibility? Do you think God is messing with you? Do you think God's yanking your chain? I don't think he is. If God says to you, pray this and pray it to a father, now your father in heaven who loves you, it's not because he's just playing games with you. It's because this is a true possibility. And so when God invites us into these things, he wants to demonstrate to us how this can be. There's a part for you to play. There's a part for me to play. If you've got a Bible with you, you might want to open it up to Mark chapter 2. You know, we were recently right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when we saw him at a wedding feast in Cana. And you know, obviously, Mark chapter 2 is not far into the gospel, so we're not long into the ministry of Jesus. But in Mark chapter 2, we find that Jesus is going to do something utterly remarkable. It's a great story, and many of you will know it really, really well. We're going to unpack some of the teaching of this story, and then we're going to find how we might have faith and how our faith can play its part, an, incredible valuable, an incredibly valuable part. So Mark chapter 2, reading from the beginning. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. I was reading this. And just the, the, the way the words are used, it got me thinking a little bit. You know, that our royals, there was another baby arrived not too long ago, wasn't there? And didn't everything, the whole of the reporting infrastructure of journalism go into overdrive? You know, what, what have the Duke and Duchess of Sussex had? Is it Sussex? Have I got that right? Yes. Okay. And uh, what, what have they had? And uh, what's going on? And what are all of the ins and the outs of it? And, you know, they, they want to know, don't they? Are they in the hospital? Have they gone home? Is this happening? And just as I was reading this, I, I started to get that sense. The reporting went out that Jesus was at home. And we miss all of these little details in the scriptures, don't we? But realize this, just in those few words, we get the sense that Jesus was as famous as baby Sussex in his day. More so. You know, we get so familiar with our Savior, don't we? And you know, there's something nice about that, that we can know that he is a great and good friend to us that we can know he is our big brother in the faith, inviting us into the family. And there's just this tender connection that we have. But don't ever lose track of the fact that Jesus is the most famous person to ever have walked on the face of the planet. And there'll never be anybody like him. He's absolutely glorious. And so when you think about your greatest friend, or your big brother in the faith, Jesus Christ, when you think about your Lord and your Savior, don't think about him as somebody small. Everybody wanted, is he at home? Is he out on a boat again? Where is he? Is it at the beach? 
Is he on a mountain? I know he goes to mountains sometimes. Where is he? What's he doing? I want to get close. I want to be with Jesus. This is the Jesus that you know. You know, be familiar in the right sense, but don't lose track of the sight that everybody wants to know Jesus. Some of them, they don't know it yet, but everybody wants to know Jesus. And you already know him. That's incredible. It was reported that he was at home, verse 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room. I don't know how big the house was. I don't know, in some of our houses, many were gathered together so there's no more room. That's like about 20 people and the whole place is stuffed, isn't it? Someone already sat on the loo by that point. You know, everywhere's full. I don't know, maybe this was a really big house. Maybe there's scores of people. Maybe there's 100 people packed in. There's no more room, not even at the door. And he, Jesus, was preaching the word to them. And they came. Who? Who came? Who came? We don't know. Nameless people in the stories of God. We don't know anything about these people. We don't know where they came from. We don't know their names. We don't know what they did for a living. We don't know any details about them whatsoever. But they came. Why did they come? And why did it matter? Because they came bringing to him a paralytic, a person who was paralyzed, carried by four men. Were there just four? Maybe even more. And they came bringing somebody, four people to carry him certainly, but maybe there's more. And they cared about this person. This person who couldn't get to Jesus for themselves, but they cared. They were significant in the life of a man who needed significant people. It's been said many times, but it's, it's really important. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. The people around you, are they getting you to Jesus? No matter what. No matter what. Are the people around you, are they the kinds of people, if you were flat on your back in desperate despair, would they be the kinds of people who would be like, right, I'm lifting you up and I'm taking you to Jesus? You know, if you were on your couch in the depths of a moment of darkness, would they be the people who'd be like, I'm going to come and I'm going to be with you. And even if I can't get you to the church building, I'm going to come and I'm going to be with you and I'm going to make sure that you know that God loves you where you are. Are those the kinds of people around you? Are they the kinds of people, if you were in physical need and you couldn't even get up, would they be the kinds of people, oh, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring Jesus to you. I'm going to make sure that you're encountering God in your place of need, at your point of need. Who is around you? And then flip that on its head. Who are you around? Are you the kind of person who lifts someone up and takes them to Jesus? Oh, it's so easy to find people who will just, ah, you know, they'll, they'll whinge with you. They'll gossip with you. They'll badmouth with you. They'll decry the whole world with you, but there's no solution in any of those things. Can you be the kind of person who'll lift someone up and take them to Jesus? They came. I don't know anything about them except that they loved that man and they knew that Jesus was the answer. And I think that's a pretty good place to start. And they came to Jesus. 
But verse 4, when they could not get near because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. (laughs) I love the way the Bible doesn't use many words to describe remarkable things. And when they could not get near, they took the roof off. It seems like there's more words needed here. I need to know, how is that even possible? How did they go about doing it? And what was it like afterwards? This is, seems like, this, this is, I need some more detail. Anybody else? Is anybody, what is going on? They took the roof off. And when they had made an opening, too right they'd made an opening, they took the roof off. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Look, there's a detail here for us. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd. You know, how often do we as Christians, how often do we as a church think that our goal is to gather a big crowd? You know, do we think that if we could just stuff the place with people, you know, they were doing good things, mind, listening to God, listening to Jesus. If we could just stuff the room with people, then we've arrived. Yet the one who really needed a miraculous touch from God was outside on the doorstep and couldn't get in. Because everybody who wanted to listen to Jesus was inside, fine and dandy. Totally ignorant of the fact that there was somebody right just outside the door who desperately needed him. Church, Christians, I want to suggest to you, it's not about gathering a crowd. I'm glad you're here tonight, I really am. I love to see you. That's the point at which you say we love to see you, Greg, as well. Now you've missed your chance now. I love to see you. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we can open up the Bible together. You know, we can hear uh, these stories of Jesus. We can even hear his voice. It's a beautiful thing. But don't ever for a moment lose track of the sight that there are people outside our door all the time who desperately need Jesus. We often think of ourselves as getting close to God. Maybe we think in those Old Testament ways of being close to the altar, close to the the very holy of holies. We think in these kinds of terms. But you know what? There's a door. There's a door. Who's there? Who's knocking? Who's walking by? Who wants to know God but doesn't know whether they ever can? Who wants to come in but isn't sure whether they'll be welcome? Christians, it's not about gathering a crowd in a church. It's about being people who are welcoming others, welcoming others to come on in. Get close to the door. Watch, help those who want to come in. Better yet, go find those who can't even get to the door. Pick them up and bring them. I've got visions in my mind's eye next Sunday evening of you all coming in with someone over your shoulder in a fireman's lift. Can we fulfill that vision? (laughs) Oh, that'd be a good thing. And they brought this man and they couldn't get in. And so they took off the roof. Bob Goff says this, he says, fail trying, but don't fail watching. It seems to me that taking off the roof is a pretty daring solution to the problem. Maybe they tried other things. Maybe they tapped on someone's shoulder and said, mate, is there any room? Could we get in? And maybe the followers of Jesus were too busy saying, nah, mate, you'll have to go away. 
Followers of Jesus wouldn't do that, would they? Maybe. Maybe they wandered around to the window. I don't think they had windows, they had holes. Maybe they wandered around to the hole and they thought, can we push him in through there? But there was no space made. What do you do? We read to our lad going on a bear hunt. And they come to these challenges on this bear hunt, whether it be swishy swashy grass or thick oozy mud. You know about these things, don't you? Yeah, okay. And uh, they get to these challenges and the refrain is, uh-oh, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We'll have to go through. Do you remember this saying? You know about these things. Okay, we'll have to go through it. I imagine, you know, it was long before the bear hunt was ever written, but I imagine these guys, they find themselves in this kind of boat. They're like, can't get in through the door. We can't get in through the window. Well, we'll have to take the roof off. And so they did. And this could have gone horribly wrong. This was not a tried and tested method for getting into a house. If you forget your keys, don't smash the roof in. This is not the way of doing things, is it? But they thought, let's give it a go. Because I'd rather fail trying than just stand around and fail watching. You know, all too often we seem to live by a different maxim, don't we? John Cleese, he put it like this. He said, he said uh, oh, where have I got it? The goal of every Englishman is to get safely to his grave without ever being embarrassed. Does that ring true for anybody? I don't know whether that's just about English people. But it, it's very true about English people. We would love, basically, to make it through our life without ever being embarrassed. That's, that's like a full life right there. Come on. Could there not be something more than that? Could we just resolve to be embarrassed from time to time in the cause of Christ? Could we resolve to make a fool of ourselves from time to time just for the sake of loving somebody? Is anybody up for looking like a complete divvy? Is it just me? Come on, the seven, eight, nine, come on. Let's be some divvies for Christ. Could we be that? I want to take some roofs off. Do you know, please, Christians, could you make a mess? Could you make a mess? Try something this week that scares you silly. Would you do that? People are always going to resent the messy glories of God especially religious people. Read on the story. It's the religious folks who got really upset about this. But you can see others healed and set free and saved in the mess if you're willing to have a go. And they lowered this guy in through a hole in the ceiling, a hole in the roof. And verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, Your sins are forgiven. Doesn't seem to follow, does it? We'll come back to that in a minute. Now, some of the scribes, religious leaders there, they're sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, what's happening here is Jesus isn't saying to them, oh, you trod on my toe, never mind. It's not like just saying to somebody, it's okay. No, what Jesus is doing is he's wiping the slate of this man's life clean. He's restoring him to right relationship with Father God. Jesus is doing that in this moment. What Jesus is doing is he is saying, I am God. 
That's what Jesus is doing. You read the scriptures, it makes it very, very plain that nobody can forgive sins except for God. Nobody can. And so when Jesus says, I'm forgiving your sins, he's saying, I'm God. And the religious leaders are really, really upset by this. They're really put out. And I don't think this man is. There he is, laid down. And at this point, he's still on his mat. They've laid him down. They put him through the roof, gently laid him down. You can imagine kind of maybe four ropes, one at each corner of his mat. And they're all trying to lay it down at the same, because they don't want him to roll off and fall in a heap on the floor, do they? So they gently lay it. And there he is. He's still on his mat. He's come for a healing, but he's got salvation. That seems like a good deal to me. Do you know, just a couple of weeks ago, God put it on my heart as we were praying for people to be healed that somebody had a pain in their left shoulder. And so we, we just shared that and we said, does anybody here have a pain in their left shoulder? And a couple of people responded, but there was one lady here and she's not here tonight, so I'm gonna share her story. But she came and she said, yes, I've got a pain in my left shoulder. But as we began to talk, it became apparent that there was a greater pain in her heart. And do you know what? That night she met with Jesus and she placed her trust in Jesus for the first time. And she became new. She came because she had a pain in her left shoulder, but she got saved. I think that's a really good deal. You can forget your buy one, get one freeze. You come for a healing and get salvation. That seems like a good deal to me. And that is what is on hand with Jesus. He does want to heal you. Body, mind and spirit, he wants to heal you. But he wants to reconcile you to your father even more. And the truth is, as he restores us to relationship with God, Jesus meets our needs along the way. And so we read that they're upset, they're angry with Jesus for being Jesus. In verse eight, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? I love that. That must have caught them up short, mustn't it? They hadn't even said anything. And Jesus said, you just said this in your heart. <laughs> Jesus knows everything, eh? Goodness me. Which is easier, Jesus says, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed. I love this because this man is paralyzed. He can't even move. He's been laid on a bed. And as I understand it, if somebody isn't moving, then all of their muscle mass will waste away. They would be entirely without strength in their body. But this guy is told by Jesus Christ, not only are you forgiven, not only are you healed, you've got the strength to get up. And not just that, you've got the strength to pick up your single bed and stroll out with it. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty remarkable to me. Because when I try and turn my mattress at home, when I change the sheets, it takes everything I got. Honest to goodness, it's not the easiest thing. And as you know, I am a fine figure of a man. 
But this guy, don't you cover that, this guy has been lying on his bed for I don't know how long. This guy has no strength in his natural body. But Jesus says, you're healed, you're forgiven, you can go and pick up your bed and probably spin it around on your head for all I care. Go home. All those miles that your mates have carried you, you can carry your bed home. You're that strong. You're that healed. You're that made whole. Jesus doesn't do things by halves. Don't expect him for half a little bit of a something. Come on. Jesus does the whole hog, doesn't he? Come on. I imagine that guy, he probably went off and he joined an athletics club. Yeah? Enrolled in the army. I don't know what he did. This man is just the most fine physical specimen you ever could see because he was touched by Jesus. And Jesus said, it's all for my glory, that you may know who I am, that you may know my authority, that you may know what's going on in this place. It's a great story, isn't it? But it hinges on something really remarkable. We want to go back to this hinge of the story See, they dug a hole in the roof and then Jesus says he saw, the scriptures say that Jesus saw their faith. I don't know what else he saw. Did he see bits of roof kind of starting to crumble down? Did people start to flick it off their shoulders thinking they got a really bad case of dandruff? What else did Jesus see? Did lumps start to fall and people are dodging to get out of the way? I don't know what Jesus, did he see it? That the point of a spade maybe just poking out through the roof. What, what did Jesus see? He saw lots of things maybe. He saw a bed and then a very confused and probably a little bit sheepish man lying on it. How does the Bible describe this? It says that no matter what Jesus saw, this is the one thing he saw. He saw faith. He saw faith. Are you any good at DIY? No. <laughs> One of you is, okay. I'm all right at DIY. But if I'm honest, every once in a while, I'll put up some shelves or something. And there is a little bit of faith involved. I think I've done a decent job. But I'll probably go back and check it multiple times over the next few weeks just to make sure. There's a bit of faith involved. I have, as yet, never hung a flat screen TV on a wall because I need my faith to rise up a little bit further before I do that. Sometimes we need a little bit of faith, don't we, in the kind of things that we're doing? You DIY by faith. But here we have men digging a hole in an adobe roof of the house where Jesus is, and the Bible calls it faith. It says that Jesus saw faith. Now, we know in Hebrews 11... That faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. When you have faith, when you're exercising your faith, when you're placing your faith in God, you're doing so because there's something that you're imagining or dreaming of or longing for and you don't yet see it. The, The things that your faith is exercised for aren't seen, but faith is visible. I want to tell you that faith is a visible thing. It's a tangible thing. It is an evidence of what is not there. And faith looks like digging a hole in a roof. Faith looks like lumps of roof being knocked out of the way so that a man could be lowered on his mat. You can see 
faith. Jesus saw faith. What does your faith look like? I don't know, maybe it looked like you getting up this evening and getting in the car and coming here tonight. Even though you felt weary or broken or hurting or struggling with this, that or the other. Maybe that's what faith looks like. God bless you if that's your faith tonight. Maybe faith looks like you're opening up the word of God alongside me tonight and saying, actually, I do believe there's truth and life for me in these pages. Maybe that's faith. Maybe faith tonight has been you singing some words of songs and saying, yes, I want to see these things. Oh, Maybe faith is you privately, quietly on your knees in prayer saying, God, if you're real, be real to me. Maybe faith is you stepping out of your ordinary, changing your diary, choosing to use your time to serve, to love, to invest yourself in your church and the mission of God. Maybe that's faith. Faith can look like 101 things, but it is visible. And Jesus, he looked for faith and he's looking for it tonight. You know, he saw it in last Sunday's centurion. He saw it in a woman with internal bleeding and two blind men. You'll find them in Matthew chapter nine. He saw it in blind Bartimaeus and he saw it in that one leper who returned to give him thanks. No wonder in James five, we find these words. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. There's faith again leading to healing, leading to forgiveness. The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Let's not be foolish. Let's be faith-filled. And show it. Show it. Faith is visible. You know, last week, we were talking about shining a light in the darkness. And we were encouraged in remembering the words of Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Oh, God is good. And we shared just briefly a story from a lady named Christine Kane. And she talked about going around the supermarket and how her, how her little girl was obsessed with torches and how she wanted to go and get herself a torch. And she got that torch, this cheap little bit of nothing. And, uh, and she shone it in the, in, the, in the shop. And the shop was so bright that they just couldn't see the light of the torch. And so the little one, she realized what the torch was for and she said to her mum, Mummy, can we please go find some darkness? And we were prompted to realize, weren't we, that the light of Christ shone into our lives, which God invites us to shine. What does Jesus instruct us in Matthew chapter five? He says, you are the light of the world. Don't put your lamp, your light under a bowl. Put it on a stand, let it shine, let it give light to the whole house. We're prompted to realize, weren't we, that our light ought to shine, not just in the beautiful presence of one another, singing these spiritual songs and encouraging one another, but in the darkness too, in the darkness too. And you know, 
this week. This story, it, it, was, it, was really, it was illustrated to me by Judah. There will come a day when my boy is old enough to say, Daddy, stop mentioning me in your sermons. But that day has not yet come. <laughs> so I'm going to. And um, in the church here, because we, we get a few pens printed with the church name on, they keep on sending me these other things that they think I should buy as well. And I never do. But they send me these cheap little pen, uh, pen torches. And, and sometimes I take these things home so he can play with them. And he had his little torch. And um, we get our milk delivered at home. And, uh, and it's out there on the front step of a morning. And one morning, it, it was about seven o'clock or something, I was going to go out and get the milk. And Judah, he got his little torch. And he said, Daddy, I'll come and help you. And, uh, and we got to the front door. I said, all right then. And so he got his little torch. And it, honestly, it's the exact same torch as this. I'm going to turn it on because it's nice and bright. And um, honestly, it was like that. Can anyone see that? Can you see that? It's not startling. I can't even. It's not startlingly bright, is it really? Seven o'clock in the morning, we stood on our front step. And Judah's like, I'm going to help you, Daddy. And it's bright this time of the year, isn't it? And so he shines his torch on the milk bottle so that I can go out and find it. Because he, <laughs> he's not got much confidence in me. <laughs> he shines his little light. And I say, thank you for your help. And I go out and I pick up the milk bottles. And I come back in and he's shining the torch all the way. And we get back in and he says to me, Daddy, we did it. And I said to him, I said, son, yes, we did. Because he knows my heart. He knows my heart. He knows that I want him to be stood there in the blazing sunshine with his immense, do you want it? Do you want it? There you go, buddy. He knows that I want him to be stood there. I want him to be stood there in the sunlight with his immensely powerful torch shining on the, the milk bottle, even though the sun's shining at all, it's brilliant. I want that. I want him to say, Daddy, I'll help you. And when I bring in the milk bottles, I want him to say, we did it, Daddy, in his gruff little morning voice. And I wouldn't have it any other way. He knows me. You know, last night, we were lying our heads on each other's chests, listening to our heartbeats. And he listens to my heartbeat and he knows me. And he knows that I want him to help me with his little flashlight. Uh, I wonder this evening, when was the last time you laid your head on your father's chest? You know, it's, it's a weird little moment in the Gospels, isn't it? When John, the beloved disciple, is described as leaning on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper and you think... That's a bit weird. I don't know. Do you not want to hear the heartbeat of God? Do you not want to know what God's about? You can play your part. Your little flashlight matters. You may think, what difference can I make? But your Father in heaven has decided that you should be a part of the process. He's made things that way. 
He has decided that the advancing of his kingdom should be made subject to the participation of his church. He's just decided that way. He has determined that you should be a part of someone's healing. If only you'll show your faith and not be afraid to make a bit of mess along the way. You think too often, I've got a little flashlight. Maybe my father will just say to me, ah, whatever. I made the sun. I don't need your flashlight. Do you not know the heart of your father? Don't you know his heart? He so desperately wants for you to come and shine your flashlight in the same direction of his moving. He wants you to realize what he's doing and come and put your torch to it. He's so desperately keen for you to play your part. Could Jesus have healed that paralyzed man if he'd found him outside the door as he came out later on? Of course he could. But those guys weren't going to settle for that. Oh, that's, that's too easy. They wanted to get stuck in. They wanted to dig a hole in a roof. They wanted to get messy. They wanted to shine their little torch. Didn't seem to make much sense. But they really wanted to do it. And I imagine as they dug their spades or whatever they dug into in that roof, I imagine all of heaven was cheering them on and saying, oh, you guys get it. You get it. And then when Jesus saw them, can you imagine? Can you imagine there's this guy down on the floor and as the dust settles, do you not think everybody must have looked up and thought, what? And they saw them up there with their mucky faces. And... And Jesus saw faith. And he said, oh, this is good. Someone's getting saved today. Oh, this is good. Someone's getting healed. You thought you just came to hear the word of God. But I tell you what, when you see faith, something better is happening than that. Come on, I, I'm preaching the word to you. To, I'm giving it everything I've got. But, but if God sees faith, this goes further. If God sees faith, someone's getting saved tonight. If God sees faith, someone's getting healed tonight. Is anybody up for some of that? You know, if we start to see these things, I might shut up. Is anyone up for that? Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> You're going to show your faith. You're going to show your faith because you rest on your father's chest and you know it's heartbeat. Because you don't say my little bit doesn't matter, but you say whatever my little bit is, I'm chucking it all in. As messy as it can get, I don't mind. Jesus knows about messiness. He knows about pain. You know, we're coming right now around the table of remembrance. And you know, sometimes I'm not sure whether we recognize what is speaking to us. Because the bread's nice on nice silver trays. And the cups are all neat and tidy and individual so you don't have to share with anybody. It's all very neat and tidy, isn't it? But it speaks to us of the messiest, most broken moment of all of human history. It tells us that Jesus allowed his own body to be absolutely brutally broken so that we might be made whole. Jesus isn't afraid of mess. He's not afraid of doing things the strange way around, the glorious way around. Jesus didn't say, it doesn't matter what I do. He said, everything hinges on it, so I'll give my all.
Christians, when we take this bread tonight, when we take this cup, though it look neat in our hands, can we say, God, make me a messy heart. Make me a messy heart of faith to give, to go, to serve, to do, to shine my torch. Would you stand with me this evening?